Uh, hey, this is Ed. So this is a podcast, is that right? This is. Okay. We're officially podcasting right now. That's awesome. This is Straight from the Cutter's Mouth. Welcome to Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a retina podcast. At least once a week, we bring you insights and perspectives from the world of vitreoretinal surgery. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Schreeder. Today on episode 97, we bring you an episode live from the 6th Annual Fit Buckle Society meeting. Doctors Tom Albini, Andrew Moshfegi, and Charlie Wyckoff join me to discuss a hot issue in retina today, the aflibercept-associated idiopathic ocular inflammation cases that have been reported throughout the country over the past few months. I'm here at the VitBuckle Society meeting with uh, three of the board members of the VitBuckle Society. First, in alphabetical order, I have Dr. Tom Albini from Baskin Palmer Institute. Dr. Albini, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I have uh, also Dr. Andrew Moshvegi from University of California, Southern California, Los Angeles. Happy to be here. And uh, last but not least, Dr. Charles, Charlie Wyckoff from uh, Retina Consultants of Texas. Great to be here. Of Houston, sorry, Houston, Texas. Um, so we're here, you, you, Dr. Moshvegi just did a presentation with uh, Regeneron uh, about the recent outbreaks of IOI associated with the Flibercept. Um, first, Dr. Moshvegi, just tell us a little bit about this problem, and then I'll, you guys will have a kind of a group discussion about this. Sure, there were a recent uh, series of reports of non-infectious intraocular inflammation occurring in patients who had received uh, aflibercept or ILEA uh, for a variety of indications and it was unclear in the beginning when this was happening over last summer and fall uh, whether there, this was drug-related or whether it was a practice-related uh, handling and, and storage and utilization of the drug issue. And so uh, what happened uh, with the company is that they hired a, someone to take a look at this from an epidemiologic perspective using uh, help from the CDC. And basically what they found was that they looked at lot numbers of the packages of ILEA that were going out. And you know, ILEA packages are not just the ILEA drug, but it's the filter needle, it's the injecting needle, it's the syringe, as well as the drug itself. They also looked at the vats of the drug where each lot was manufactured back at the company, and they tried to say, well, uh, these cases, were they tied to any of these individual uh, factors? And they started looking at uh, each individual metric, and they tried to see if there were uh, any uh, sort of safety signals related to each of those uh, findings. What they found, in fact, was that there, when they looked at individual lots of drug or vats where uh, they were manufactured that they didn't see huge numbers. They saw sort of the background noise uh, levels of less than 10 cases uh, per 10,000 injections. Uh, but when they looked at uh, the syringes, the actual syringe that comes inside uh, the package, they found uh, every single one of the uh, sort of uh, lots of the syringe that were used was associated with a higher than normal level of background inflammation. Uh, when they looked at the needles, uh, either the filter needle or the injecting needle, they didn't see that. Um, so preliminarily, the uh, association that was identified, not necessarily a causative factor, but the association uh, was that they believe that it's uh, possibly related to uh, the syringe that's being used. Now, it's also been anecdotally reported, but not uh, independently verified. Uh, that there may have been some additional cases that perhaps weren't associated with these um, specific types of sur uh, syringes, uh, but that needs to be uh, verified to see if that's in fact the case. And my sense was from hearing that data presented was that it was not a 
slam dunk 100% association, that there were, even within that data set, some lots that had a higher number of inflammatory events than would have been expected um, that weren't associated with the problem lots of syringes. So I, I think, you know, in my mind, looking at this, it's, it looks more like just exploratory data. This is really just building hypotheses, trying to figure out what we can look at to see um, uh, if we can figure out a cause. Uh, Dr. Harry Flynn uh, spoke uh, at an earlier part of the meeting during the medical retina session and uh, uh, told the audience that there were there was a case, I think there are actually two cases like this, where patients uh, had bilateral ILEA injections from medicines from different lots at Bascom Palmer, but developed um, an inflammatory response like this, a sterile inflammatory response only in, uh, in one eye. Mm -hmm. So whatever is going on here, I think, is, is it's a very rare event, um, and it's, it's very difficult to figure out. I think it's important to say, too, from the, from the Regeneron data that the um, the rate in the, the, I think the highest rate that they had documented was 17 cases and 10,000 for one lot. Mm -hmm. So that's still a, a very low rate. I think the thing is, it's important for clinicians to realize is that, you know, there are risks and benefits to everything that we do in practice, and certainly one of the risks of intravitreal injections are these inflammatory events, and they have been reported after all of the different medications that we inject inside of the eye. And, Recently, there seems to be this increased incidence following Aflibercept's use, and I, you know, I think it's regional. I, I, I use all three of the medications um, frequently, and I have never seen any cases with Aflibercept in my hands. I think that's simply because the incidence is, is so low, even though it seems to go be correlated to be higher in certain batches of the syringes versus other batches. You know, in my group of 12 doctors, we've had three cases over the last approximately one year. Um, and it's really important for clinicians to be aware that this can happen, I think, after any of the drugs and to have a high index of suspicion. Given the incidence, it's, it's hard to, I think, predict the rate in any one person's clinic, but to realize that this can happen and that the key is that even though we think these are sterile events, that the, the issue of possible infectious endophthalmitis needs to be considered first and foremost. And if there's any indication of that, uh, we can talk about what those clinical signs are, uh, but the patient needs to be managed for an infectious process, even if someone thinks this could be inflammatory, um, if there's any indication that this could be infectious. Because I think that's the one place where, where, we could, where we could go wrong as a field is if we sort of encourage people to sort of look out for these inflammatory cases and then miss any cases right. of infective endophthalmitis. Wait, so we'll talk a little bit about the difference between you know, there was a question brought up, is this something that happens with other drugs? Is there an acceptable rate for this that's acceptable? But let's just talk a little bit just for maybe someone's listening to this and they have never seen this, right? So how do they differentiate this Dr. Mashvegi from endophthalmitis that they see it? Because there's a rate of both of them. You said the rate, you said it was 17 for 10,000. The rate of infection is, you know, one in a few thousand. You know, the rate 000. is honestly immaterial. It's so infrequent that one given doctor can't see the quote-unquote rate. They, they see right. one patient here, one patient there. It's not, it's not meaningful. None of us do that many yeah. injections. But, but what, my point is they, they may be equally likely. They're yeah. both rare events. So if you so see one patient, there were 200 then. injections. There were 200 inflammatory events out of a denominator of, what did you say, of some 300,000? I can't remember. Some, uh, a couple hundred thousand or, yeah, like maybe half a million injections, yeah. something on that order. But in terms of clinical distinguishing characteristics, um, I think Dr. Flynn's case that he showed, 
uh, during the medical retina section was uh, very characteristic of the inflammatory, non-infectious type of inflammation that one sees. And basically what he showed there, and I, I think it's fairly characteristic, I've had one case myself and it was very similar, is in this case he had a hypopia, but no fibrin in the anterior chamber. The anterior chamber was otherwise uh, unremarkable. Uh, there, the bulbar conjunctiva and sclera were uh, unremarkable, quiet, uh, he described it as, uh, which is very different from, for example, streptococcal endophthalmitis following intravitreal bevacizumab or one of these other uh, types of anti-VEGF agents where the eye is very angry, uh, conjunctival injection, hypopion, fibrin, uh, you may or may not have sneaky eye, and then obviously you're going to have lots of uh, vitreitis as well. Now in these cases, they did have some vitreal inf inflammation. Um, they can be managed conservatively with just topical corticosteroids given uh, the lack of the other findings. The, the other thing was pain. These, yeah, most of discomfort. these cases of, of, of yeah, inflammation just have mild discomfort and no, no real frank pain. But let me uh, reiterate that if you are going to manage them the way that I just said with corticosteroids alone and no tap and inject, that you have to be able to follow these patients either throughout right. the day or into the next day to make sure that they're, in fact, moving in the right direction with that approach and not deteriorating. Uh, the case that I had, I managed precisely that way. This was like three, four years ago. Um, patient came in with a little bit of discomfort, uh, completely white and quiet eye. It was a patient I ejected bilaterally and just had really prominent vitreous aggregates. Uh, no hypopion, cleared up, but it took several weeks on Durazol, uh, diflupredinate, uh, for him to clear up and uh, ultimately uh, did fine. Yeah, I would just echo the, the issue of just being really cautious in calling an inflammatory event when there's any possibility of infection. I think the one place that we can go wrong with this as a field is if we miss just one eye that is an infected case and we assume that it's inflammatory and we don't treat it as possible endophthalmitis. So really have a very low threshold document in the notes. I think medical legally this is a really a, a very real issue to just make sure you've at least documented that you consider the possible possibility of infection and that you're taking all precautions to rule that out. The other thing that was mentioned was with visual acuity, two important things was one was that unlike a lot of bad endophthalmitis cases like you would expect in a hypopia and endophthalmitis uh, post-injection, the vision, the patients still retained formed vision. So they were 2200, 2400 visions instead of hand motions, count fingers type vision. And then happily also, uh, these patients do come back to baseline. Uh, virtually all of them have come back to baseline. I haven't heard the case yet of one that had permanent vision loss over, as a consequence. Over what time period? Weeks. Yeah. You know, Harry's case presented 13 days yeah. after the injection. Yeah, that's you know, most cases of infectious endophthalmitis occur within the first 48 hours, with a lot of them occurring in 24 hours. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's in terms of time of onset. In terms of time to resolution, like I said, my case, I mean, I have an N of one um, experience, but um, it took four to five weeks before it was completely resolved inflammation. So the, the, the kind of last discussion point, and I'll let you guys go in whatever direction you want with this, but, and uh, I'll start with you, Dr. Mashvegi. The first question is, um, what is an acceptable baseline rate of IOI, right? And the second question is, has any of this changed your practice pattern in terms of the medication you use or your consent process for your patients? I don't know that we know the answer to the, the first part of the question in terms of what's the acceptable rate. Um, certainly we, we're accepting of that rate 
of let's say three to four that occurred during the clinical trials per 10,000. Um, and the FDA was satisfied with that as well. It wasn't a red flag. The FDA, um, the company representative also pointed out today, isn't asking for a recall of the drug based upon the rates that have already been identified. Um, so, you know, to the extent that we trust them as the arbiter of what's uh, acceptable and safe for our patients, um, I think that's a telling piece of information. Yeah, you, you know, I, I um, my belief in this is that the FDA is, is, is critical in this in this part, part. So, you know, we're fortunate, I think, to practice in an area where we do have clear oversight and regulatory um, breaks on systems when there are problems. You've seen this with other drugs that have been recalled, and it's just important to emphasize again that there's been no mandatory FDA-guided recall of ILEA in any capacity here. So I, I do not think that this is a public health safety issue at this point. Um, it was a voluntary recall of, the, of, of certain batches of the syringes. Um, at least in my clinical practice, what we have done is to move away from using any of the aflibercept associated syringes for any aflibercept treatments. We use our own syringes um, and do not use the prepackaged syringes at this time. Um, but that like, we have we have uh, limited data to support that. But that that's been our clinical practice in order to try to minimize any potential risk of seeing these events in our clinics. Um. In my mind, I, I think that we tolerate a rate of endophthalmitis uh, for the benefits of the drug, and the benefits of the drug are immense. So um, I think even this fourfold increase in, from the baseline rate, from you know, two per 10,000 to eight or 10 or up to 16 per 10,000, is probably reasonable, especially given the fact that the patients do ultimately come back to, to baseline vision. Um, so I think it, it wouldn't make much sense to me that we would give the drug and tolerate endophthalmitis, which has such poor outcomes, and not tolerate this. Um, so it seems very reasonable to continue with the drug. So in, in my mind, we've done the same thing. Obviously, we've gotten rid of the lots, given them back to Genentech that have been identified, or to, uh, sorry, Regeneron, that have been identified as, a, as, a, as problematic lots. Um, we have taken out the syringes, just like Charlie's group has done, using our own syringes now. Um, instead, even though I think there's a good amount of healthy skepticism as to this, the syringe really being the source of the problem, um, and, um, uh, and at least in my personal clinic, my patients that have done well with ILEA in the past are going to continue to receive ILEA, um, and I know that some of the physicians of Aspen Palmer have started switching their patients to others. So I think both are, are reasonable options. And, and that's something that every physician has to answer himself. But again, I think the, the problem to me seems uh, like it's a, like a very rare problem, as, as Charlie was saying. And I, I still think that uh, the benefits of this drug way outweigh um, the, uh, this problem that we're having. Yeah, I'd, I'd echo that. So, you know, if we think about the rate of endophthalmitis, effective endophthalmitis, like, you know, people can get very heated in discussion of what their personal rate is versus the national rate, but it's probably somewhere in the range of one in 1,000 to one in one th 3,000 which is higher than all the rates that we've talked about is accepting for these inflammatory events. So it is a little bit of a needle in a haystack, just to make the point one more time, that you're, that you're much more likely to see a case of infected um, an infection after an injection than a sterile event if you look at the pure rates, the background rates. Um, to play, I, to I play would, devil's would, advocate, though, maybe the reason people have this difference is that infection rate has never been shown to be difference between the two, the three options we have that are anti-VEGF drugs. And here, this is a situation where this hasn't been reported to other medications. Maybe that's why people have that concern. 
uh, even though the visual outcomes are really, really good, as you said, Dr. Albini. But I wouldn't say it hasn't been reported. I would, it just hasn't been reported in the magnitude mm -hmm. uh, that's been reported with afliverson. But to Tom's point, I, I have not changed my personal practice in any way. The patients that have done well, I agree with what Tom said, on, in, on, in aflibercept in my clinic have not, have not changed any patients away from aflibercept because of this issue in my clinic. I mean, if we find out that this is an expanding problem and that next month, you know, we've got 800 cases, then that's, you know, then it becomes obviously we have to regroup and rethink things through. But things could go the other way too. But, yeah. you know, we, yeah. we lived through this a couple of years ago uh, where there was an out cluster of uh, these problems and, and then it went away. So um, we'll have to watch carefully and see. One thing that I would make a plea for is anybody out there that does have one of these cases, please take the time to inform uh, Regeneron and the rest committee at the ASRS uh, of the case so that we can really look at these numbers closely and be aware of what's going on. Perfect. Well, last thing, um, we're at the Bitbuckle Society meeting. It's the end of the first scientific full day. Uh, Dr. Wyckoff, you're the head of the scientific program this year. It's been a great day. Um, probably late for anyone listening to this to come to the meeting this year, but for next year, you can give a plug. It's never too late. Never too late. <laughs> and Jay, you're going to be planning it next year, so we look forward to a great meeting next year. <laughs> no pressure. Well, um, thank you guys for doing this. Uh, we'll get this up as soon as possible, and uh, hopefully this is informative to all the people out there with questions about uh, using the flipper stuff. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. As always, you can find this episode and all prior episodes on our website, retinapodcast.com. That's R-E-T-I-N-A podcast.com. All 97 episodes, including this one, can be found there sorted by category. You'll also find our blog, Equal Round and Reactive, Lessons from Our Pupils. On our website, you can sign up for our mailing list to get updates on the most recent episodes. And at the bottom are links to subscribe in the iTunes Store as well as Google Play. You can also like our Facebook page. You'll find us in the podcast section of the iTunes Store and Google Play. We're on Twitter at Retina Podcast. And to contact us, click on the Contact Us link on our website or email us at retinapodcast at gmail.com. We really love getting feedback, both things we can do better and things we are already doing well. We also appreciate anyone who subscribes via iTunes or Google Play to leave your positive comments in the form of a review. Many thanks to Drs. Albini, Mashfegi, and Wyckoff for joining me. Thanks to Louis Kai, Mike Vinicasa, and Angela Chang for the great production. Finally, thank you listeners for what you do on a daily basis, the patient care you provide, the articles you read and publish, and the conversations you inspire here. We'll be at the Fit Buckle Society meeting uh, all weekend, and uh, we'll have an update coming out next week along with Journal Club, uh, maybe on a Wednesday. That will be on Wednesday, March 28th. This is Jay Schreeder signing off.